0: Yeah, um, so my name is Kai Mora. I am the senior fellow at the African History Project and also a writer based in New York City. Um, and I think, as somebody who studies African history in particular, like also the diaspora of African in particular, I think that a lot of our history has been either, um, you know, for the diaspora, it's been dislocated from us, right? Like, there's only so much we know about our past.
1: Hello, and welcome to Obehe Podcast. I'm your host Obihe A14, and I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started into this episode.
0: But even for Africans, right, who who live on the continent. Um, the idea of history is tricky because there are often nations with multiple ethnic groups, um, multiple linguistic and cultural groups. Um, so it kind of makes things complicated to learn about your own, even your own history, because it's not taught in, in in such a direct manner. Um, so I think it's important for you know the global Black world, whether you're in the diaspora or Africa, to really zone in on all Black history because it's hard for us to differentiate between, you know which ones are more important to us. We have our own personal histories, but uh, the history as a people, I think that's so important for us um, just because of all these dislocations that have happened. So like, I think when we study both our own personal histories and histories that are outside of our like local community, we kind of build this sort of Pan-African ideal. We sort of piece together little by little where we belong in relationship to each other, but also in relationship to to the world, right? Like you said, we are often aren't told about even if we are talked about we are talking about Egyptian history, they people fail to realize that this is African history, right even though it is Egypt, right This is Africa. Um, so just kind of like contextualizing that history with Africa is also super important as well for people to realize like this is African history proper. Um, this is not some foreign history that's not a part of us.
1: Uh-huh. Thank you very much for that. So I want to thank all of you again for joining us. This conversation is very important because this is about us. It's about the history. It's not just about some date and data. They are important because it forms our identity. It tells us who we are. It gives us the instrument to be able to form uh, our our bearing in the world today because if you don't know where you are coming from uh, i don't want to be sounding like uh, i'm preaching a gospel here again if you don't know where you are coming from sorry you are lost you don't have any you don't have any any sense of orientation so it is very important that we know about our history and not just that it is very important that we do the digging we need to find out about our history because Now, you you don't want your competitors to be the one teaching you the the strategy or how to succeed. It will never happen. So that is why, as Africans, we must do the work, do the digging, know about our history, and know the one we want to promote the more. Because, come on, we have suffered too much. It's a time we start looking around and understanding, which are those stories that really make us think. So now, the story we are talking about today is the story of Queen Amani Reda. Just like the other time we are talking about uh, uh, Thomas Sankara, we are going to follow about the same uh, strategy here. We are going to understand who, he, who she was, what she did, and in what time frame she lived. So for the people who do not understand who Queen Amani Rader uh, are or was, can you give us a little background of who she was?
0: Um, so Amani Menes was a, a Nubian queen who ruled, um, around twenty to twenty-five before the Common Era, um, and she she was a Nubian queen. And the Nubian queen uh, translates, at least into the in this modern period, as the female name Candace. It's typically Candace is usually a female name, um, and she fought the Roman Empire. She fought. So Nubia is like right below Egypt and she fought against Roman-occupied Egypt. Roman-occupied Egypt was trying to encroach on Nubian land. Um, In Amani Renes, she is the one who fought that back um, after her husband had passed away. Uh, Their son was too young to take the throne, so she assumed that position. However, this um, trend of women in power during this time in Nubia was actually not uncommon. This was something that many women before Manuena's had came to power in this sort of way. Um, so this is, she's a great figure, but I also want us to realize that women in power is not something that's unique or something that's super rare. This is something that happened traditionally in the society.
1: Uh, I thought I, I was thinking of that going to, going to ask you, because I, there is another argument that I really find very interesting talking about. I think I did mention of it mention of it the last time you were here you no? uh, which is the role of women in in the role of women in shaping society in africa because it's not women are not subsidiary they are they, they are they are a key player they have a key role to play in society whether in terms of war or a time of peace so uh, i i really like it when you may mention of the fact that it is not strange that a woman is leading men in battle That is very important to all the lines. It's not like they they are just coming to bring bread to the people that are fighting. They really were also fighting just like the men. So it is very important that. So do we know anything about uh, how Amanda Renner rose from, uh, rose to prominence? Uh, Like how she became a very important figure from when she was, when she grew up? Uh, If anything had led her uh, to uh, occupy the position that she she did occupy?
0: Yeah, I mean, there isn't, there's still not a lot known about Amani Menace. Um, There's much more known about this period of like five years, five to 10 years that she fought against um, Augustus Caesar. There isn't a lot known about her life. And the reason for that is because they're still translating these old ancient Nubian um, languages. And hopefully when they do finally get to to work on that, um, there'll be more to know about her life. But just in general, um, Again, especially in this Nubian society, women were often the determiners of um, lineage, right? So uh, the men, men who married women, they married the woman um, as, a, as a source of prestige. Um, so again, like I was saying before, the fact that um, this women coming to power was not an uncommon thing that speaks a lot to, Iman, I think speaks a lot to Aman and Remus's. History that she was probably coming from royalty. This wasn't just a random woman who was, you know, found on the street. This is somebody who probably came from um, a, a royal line, royal history. She's probably someone um, that has been in battle before. Archery was a big thing in Nubia at that time, so she's probably had some training in, in archery and those sorts of battles. Um, but again, the way that she she sort of came to power in that specific moment was that her husband had died uh, while he was trying to. Um, lead an offensive against the Roman Empire and, and it's speculated that he died in that um, process and she immediately took the reins on that because her son was um, too young to kind of take the lead on the throne.
1: Mm-hmm. Do we know anything about uh, about her kind of uh, military style? Because now she is confronting the biggest military in the world at the time. Rome was the biggest uh, empire at the time of the world. So challenge uh that that mili- that strength uh, you need more than just courage so do we know anything about how her army was structured mm-hmm. yeah
0: so i think um again uh, archery is something that was particularly uh, uh popular in nubia a lot of, there were a lot of skilled archers but as far as like just overall military strategy um i think it takes a lot out of like guerrilla warfare like if we, we can make that parallel um, this was not a great battle that was like just that one um, city or one town or one village. This is a series of battles of at different points um, of the in-between space between Egypt and Nubia. So that just goes to show that like there would be one offensive that, that was led and then they would retreat into a different part of um, this area and then again be drawn into battle. So I would say uh, more or less confidently that it seems that she did partake into a, in she took part she did partake in a lot of guerrilla warfare um and then her son also did kind of like grow up during this process so he also did lead his own uh, sort of like expeditions um to help his mom as well um but i think yeah her military strategy was definitely along the lines of like guerrilla warfare you know Strike once and then retreat. Strike again then retreat. Um, shift around. Keep
1: your enemy on their toes. That sort of thing. Uh, talking of this gorilla warfare, <laughs> if I, talking of this encounter with the European, that make me remember also another important um, personality in North Africa. Uh, talking of the Carthaginian army, uh, hadiba who uh, came to who came to Italy, is central. He did uh, a, a huge damage to the Roma uh, army at the time. Of course, that is not the person we are talking about. I'm just looking at. The strategy that they employed to be able to uh, did a heavy blow to the Roman to the Roman Roma army. Uh, of course, we are going to talk about also the treaty that was signed later, which was uh, largely in favor of the of the Kushite uh, army mm-hmm. and the Kushite people, as it were. So, the 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 thing I would like to understand now is that why was it even necessary for uh, Rena to get involved in the war? Because this is. Uh, they, they, they were attacking people that were on their neighbor so i i am not sure i understand that part very clear
0: yeah so um egypt actually egypt and nubia and this is one of the things i love about african history is that like it's not just sort of this like blanket you know like african unity thing there are conflicts all over right for different reasons and so this space that is between um egypt and nubia is um very fertile and it has a lot of different sorry let me just pause that um it has this area between uh, Egypt and Nubia is it very fertile. It has a lot of commodities. So this is uh, even before the Romans uh, occupied it and actually took it from the Greeks who had occupied it before the Romans, um, even when it was you know, a, a black space, so to speak, they were still having these sorts of conflicts of who controls this area. The, the Nubian kingdoms um, and the Egyptian kingdoms were still battling over who had control of this space. Um, so when the Romans come in and, uh, take this space away from the Greeks, they begin to tax, um, they conquer the space and then they begin to tax the Nubians who are living in the area. Obviously that's a problem, right? They don't know these Romans from a hole in the wall. They've come from their country across the Mediterranean and have come and told these, these people that they have to now pay them tribute, um, so, one again, it's a long history of fighting for control of the space that precedes even the Romans and the Greeks. But also, it's sort of a, a it is Amani Renus wanted to assert Nubia's autonomy and saying that we're not going to pay you any tribute. We are our own sovereign state um, and we don't have to bow down to you, essentially. Um, that's what makes it so spectacular that she was able to say this to literal. The head of the Roman state, which is you remember at this part, is like a super big empire, and everybody's scared of the Romans at this point, right? They're brutal. Um, but she, she, she took them head on, and I think that's really a testament to her character. And even though it did end up favorable for the the Nubians, so actually, uh, this is the kingdom of Meroe, um Even though it was, it ended up being favorable. favorable Favorable to them. Um, it wasn't necessarily that they were strong militarily. That's not to say that they didn't put up a very strong resistance, a very strong fight. Um, but they, I would say they most certainly did not beat back the Romans um, through just military might. I think the Romans were more um, impacted by how the Nubians had destabilized the rest of their empire. So this war, right? Uh, if we can make the comparison for like France and Algeria, right? Even the, the the French people were like, "Why are we in this war? It's wasting so much of our resources. We're sending so many people over there to go die in this war. Like, why don't we just give Algeria its independence?" Um, and I think there was kind of a similar thing um, in in this period where the Nubians, because they were you know engaging in guerrilla warfare and really kind of like terrorizing the Romans, it's not that they were like you know defeating them militarily, but they were just commanding so many resources. I mean, they were destabilizing again that region that was so fertile. So Rome couldn't even you know extract any wealth from that area because they were just all over the area fighting. Um, So what's the point of that? If you wanted that space to kind of control the economic value of it and you can't get the economic value out of it, then why continue the war? So I think it's more of um, the Nubians had destabilized Rome politically and economically, which kind of um, made Rome give up a lot quicker. And, And again, this is a really short war. This war is like five years long. Um, the Algerian war was longer than that. The Algerian war would like went on for like almost what, like 10 years or something like that. Um so I think, yeah, even if they weren't like super strong militarily, it does show you how smart they were about how they they carried along, how Amani Menace like, you know, directed the war.
1: Uh, in terms of in terms of weapon, what did they have to use? Because okay, it's it's not it's not as colossal as Rome was, no, in terms of army, but they are not also two or three people this is, there are some logistics to be taken care of there. There are weapons that need to be, uh, to be taken there to fight. So, uh, do, we, do we understand the kind of tool, the kind of weapon that they use, and also the logistics, how they manage to manoeuvre themselves, and, because if they were insignificant, the Roma would not make any treaty with them. They were mm-hmm. really sizable in the sense of, they were able to obstruct the strategy that the Roma put in place. That is why they make the treaty and they give them what they wanted, don't? No? So, mm-hmm. I'm trying to understand, what kind of what point did they you?
0: Yeah, again, I think they were very strong archers. Um, and you know, at this time, archery is is not necessarily something that Rome is particularly like apt at. That. I think they're more because archery is like, I mean, I'm not a war expert in any sense of the the word, but um, you know, archery is kind of like a distance sort of kind of warfare, right? You don't necessarily have to approach your enemy in order to shoot an arrow at them. But Romans, they're a little bit more um, into like hand-to-hand combat, close combat. So it's hard for them to, you know, engage in battle with these people who are number one, engaging in guerrilla warfare um, and number two, shooting long distance weapons. Um, So I think that's part of it. Again, there isn't a lot known about the specifics of the battle because the only account of this battle is by like one or two Greek, ancient Greek historians or ancient Roman historians, Greek and Roman historians, honestly. but I think it's a safe bet to say that they have, the Romans were destabilized by this like long-distance sort of warfare that they weren't necessarily super used to. All
1: right. I understand that you've been uh, working in this area for a long time. But what I'm trying to understand now is, how did you get to know of this part of the story? and uh, What is uh, more interesting for you as, as a historian, looking at this, specifically the story of Amani Reynolds?
0: Yeah, I think what's most uh, interesting to me is, I think the the most interesting part about this story is, again, the fact that even this Nubian army, that's not to say that Nubia was extreme. The Kingdom of Meroe was extremely, uh, even though it wasn't as big as the Roman Empire, it was still extremely, um, it was a sovereign state, right? It was a powerful sovereign state, at least for the area. Um, So I think the fact that even if they weren't able to dominate Rome militarily, they still cause that destabilization and it's not that that's super unique or super um, you know rare to our history right we see examples of that throughout African history throughout black history we see guerrilla warfare in the 20th century Um, But I think this strategy that's been so consistent throughout our history of like guerrilla warfare, destabilizing grand colonial powers when you don't have the sort of technology to to beat them back yourself or the kind of military power that you have to beat back yourself. I think this trend that we're seeing that goes all the way back to these ancient times is super interesting to me that how we're still to this very day carrying out these same sorts of methods of warfare um, that are more or less successful.
1: Alright, now, looking at the logistics, like I was just saying, um, do we know, like, how many soldiers does Amani Rena have to uh, command, have to organize, in order to take on Rome?
0: Yeah, um, I think they actually did not have, if I'm not incorrect, they only had about 10,000 soldiers, in the initial fight that Amani Renis, um led, sort of, the first big offense, was only a group of, like, 10,000 soldiers, um, and the person who had came back the the essentially governor of egypt who had came back to because she didn't she didn't necessarily fight augustus caesar himself but like augustus caesar's uh generals um he came back with an army like twice that size um so but this and this is only in the initial phase so if they're destabilizing rome with this little instance you know rome is probably going to come back with soldiers that are even more numerous than the original double um but again i think that one of the things that guerrilla warfare really does show you is that it really doesn't matter how many soldiers you're trying to beat back. It actually, in a certain sense, it's like the more the merrier because in guerrilla warfare, you're getting a lot of your ammunition, you're getting a lot of your weapons from the power that you're currently attacking. So the more that there's weapons around, the more weapons you can gain. Um, so yeah, she was definitely, it, it was definitely a strategy of like being, working smarter, not harder, if that makes sense.
1: Okay, harder, not smarter. Because if you don't have the, the, the number now, uh they have, you have to employ set a certain strategy to be able to to work it out mm-hmm. <laughs> so exactly. I, I, I don't i'm not sure i get it but I, I was trying to understand also which is the part that make it more intriguing for you that make it more interesting for you as a historian
0: yeah um i think stories about battle are always interesting to me because i i guess i'm somebody who often roots for the underdog right like i'm always somebody who like whenever I see a big, huge power that's trying to like step on a smaller, um, like a smaller country or a smaller people or a smaller state, like I always root for the underdog. Um, so in, in it's like a double underdog, right? Because not only is it like a smaller state or a smaller country, it's also a woman, right? Like it's also a woman who's like, you know, in, at least in the Roman conception, who shouldn't even be in this sort of power. She shouldn't be directing, giving military commands right like that's totally foreign to them so I think the fact that number one the Nubian kingdom the the kingdom of Meroe in general is sort of just like the smaller state compared to Rome and then on top of that having a woman who is definitely probably throwing them off the fact that they they're being so destabilized by a woman I think that's that's what makes it really really special to me and stories that are like it makes it really interesting for me to to observe
1: Mm-hmm. And I say, maybe for example, I'm um, one of your students. I'm um, trying to understand what is what do we learn from a, a personality like a Queen Amanirena in 2022? What, what would you say?
0: Again, I think it's about working smarter and not harder. I think, you know, throughout the 20th century, particularly not even just in Africa, but all over the global black world, right? There's always this con this always this like um, this message of like, we're going to beat back and we're going to be like, we're going to defeat them. And there's a lot of talk about like, like, you know, armed uprisings and armed resistances and like all that was great. And it was definitely helpful during that period. But I think what stories like this can also show us that sometimes it's not about fighting back your enemy with violence, right? Sometimes it's not always about having to be like this strong armed resistance. Sometimes it's about simply outsmarting your enemy um, and throwing your enemy off. Um, And then also just like uh, in general, like understanding the role of women in these societies. Um, So, you know, Black society, African society has changed so much since European colonization and even um, Arabic colonization of Africa has changed so much as far as the role of women is concerned. Um, But we have to remember that back in the day, back in this time of Mani Ren, it's like women were all over the place. Women were super revered, women were, just as part of the community and in the political process as men were if not even more um so i think those are two big takeaways that we can certainly take away from this this experience or this part of history
1: i was reading uh, one of your articles recently that you published on history.com and where you said mm-hmm. something to the fact of um, there is a long history of uh, of female uh, player in african uh, history now of course in the military of course it's evidence can you like expand on that a little bit
0: in Nubia, as well as like, uh, so there's Nubia, like the kind of geographic space, and then there are different kingdoms that are within Nubia. And this kingdom of Meroe is not the only kingdom where you see these women. So like, again, before, before and after Mani Renes were other queens, you know, again, like I said, it's being the name Kandake, who had came to power. But in addition to that, Um, women in Nubian society were just revered generally. Like if you witness a lot of the artifacts and a lot of the architecture um, in this region, you see a lot of images and a lot of paintings and a lot of structures that are giving odes to women. Um, There's one that me and this professor were talking about um, of this woman who is seated in front of like this shrine or whatever, and there's a man who has a line of cows uh, behind him and he's pouring libations to her right in front of her. Um, and these are like, this is a common motif that is found throughout this period. So women, not only are women allowed to hold such positions of power, they're also just revered in society as mothers. One other uh, way that we, we understand this is that on tombstones, um, they typically listed the lineage of the person who passed. And at the head of the tombstone is always the mother first. Sometimes the father is not even mentioned, right? It's always my mother was so-and-so and so-and-so, and, so, and then it will be my father, and then my uncle, or so on and so forth. And sometimes even the men are not even listed. Um, so throughout the society, yes, women are uh, given positions of political power, but also in general, women are revered in a certain kind of like spiritual also, um way. I think it's, uh, it's not just one event that has made Africa in, and not even just Africa, but all over the Black world, wherever Black people are, I think um, it's not just one event that has caused that, right? I think European colonization has definitely um, caused a lot of it, right? I mean, European civilization, they get their philosophies from ancient Greek and Roman civilization. And what we know just as a fact historically, like these civilizations were extremely misogynistic. Women were not allowed to, in most of these ancient societies, women were not allowed to come out of the house. Um, Their job was to be a a housewife in in Essentia. They were not allowed, like, even just not even to do politics, like they were allowed to go maybe to the marketplace, pick up your food and go back inside of the house, right? Um, So I think European colonization, because it's so rooted in ancient Greek and Roman um, history and philosophy, that's one way that Africa has kind of been victim to this sort of misogynistic philosophy. Um, But also, um, Arab colonization has probably caused some of it too. Um, You know, I've read things about, I haven't read the Quran specifically, but I've heard the Quran is actually pretty progressive and it is does not necessarily relegate women to secondary positions, but human beings are human beings and men are men. Um, they have interpreted that text to be something that it might not actually be. Um, so I think a lot of the Arab colonization of Africa in that early period, you know, like from like the seventh century to around like the 14th century or something like that, um, might have also caused a lot of that misogyny that we see in African societies and Black societies
1: today this may agenda, this main way of looking at society, could it be responsible for why we don't see more of women's story be told? I mean, if this kind of society that we have today have influenced also that.
0: I think, um, again, like, who's responsible for that? I mean, like, who's in power, right? Like, I think there are a lot of great men, just like yourself, who tries their best to really, like, demonstrate not only that women have the potential to be, you know, um, full citizens or like full respected citizens of any society, but like, we have been full responsible citizens of society before, you know, since the beginning of time, right? I mean, half of civilization would not be possible if it wasn't for the things that women did in building up society in the first place. Um, But I think, Again, like you just have to look at who's in power and you have to look at their, unfortunately, you have to look at their politics. And again, human beings are human beings and whatever kind of biases they grow up with is, you know, that's what has to be changed. Um, Luckily, I think that the generations that are coming up right now, um, including, you know, my own generation, I think we are becoming more and more progressive and we do want to see more, you know, women in the workplace. I mean, men have been the consistent you know gender so to speak in power for centuries now and it doesn't seem like things have gotten any better or any different right um so maybe if we see more women in power these days we might actually see some sort of change who knows that's i guess a speculation but you never know i get it right like women are a lot less like prone to be going to war right um at least that's what it seems like i don't know how true that is but also like even in this case of amani Rennes, right like it was not uncommon for women to engage in war. Um, Like, as a matter of fact, many of the rulers, not even just in Nubia, but in Egypt as well, um, really just like this whole like Northeast region, women, there are literal statues of women, you know, ripping their enemies apart and holding weapons. And so like, it's not that, I think we should maybe move away from this idea that women are like, less war prone, right? I think women are just as complex as men. Um, I think maybe the only reason why women are less war prone is because we've been kept away from war, right? We're not allowed to go to war. I mean, it's different now in the U S and stuff like that. At least you're, you're able to engage in combat now and stuff like that as a woman. Um, so I think maybe like the first thing I would say is that like, we have to stop (sighs) boxing women into this sort of like, Oh, they're so peaceful. And like, women are just as likely to hit the red button as men, I feel like, right? Like human beings are human beings. Um, But as far as like, how do we get this conversation going of like, how do we put more women into position? I think, remember we were having this conversation, you know, last week or maybe the week before, whenever it was, that women can't expect men to do it for them. Um, Women can't look to men and say, well, you need to give us power. I think that's, it's the same thing as us, you know, as Africans, as Black people going to the colonial power and saying, well, you need to do this and you need to do that. They don't care. Um, Like, again, there are wonderful, great men just like yourself, but the other, the rest of them, they don't care. Um, So it's less of a matter of us going and asking for it and more of us just like taking it, quite honestly. Um, I mean, even Thomas Nkara said it himself, he's like, Thomas Sankara was for sure like a feminist and he tried to give women as much, you know, he let them join the army, he let them do all sorts of training and hold positions of power, um, but he said it himself, he's like, but at the end of the day, you have to fight for it. It's not something I can give to you. It's something that you have to take for yourself and I think that's very, very true. Uh,
1: looking at the women taking it up, taking it themselves, because like you said, nobody's going to give it to them really. Of course, you will have some people to uh, to support there. I think the the... The comparison is is pretty is pretty nice no looking at maybe the difference between europe and africa there are some europeans who will really support the fight for africa to be free there are some i know <laughs> but they're not going to be the one in the front they're not going to be the one to start it though no? but if you are fighting you are falling there you are rising up falling there will some of them will come to really support you no. Mm-hmm. that is that is true of human being now also looking at women because we are talking of a woman that have played an important role in, in her lifetime, we are talking about her, therefore, which is her, Amani Reina. Uh, do you see women really taking up this challenge of being able to play an equal role? Because they have always played the role. If no, we will mm-hmm. not be talking about Queen Amani Reina here, but society has changed. Things have changed, no? But do you mm-hmm. see them try to come to play that dominant role today?
0: Absolutely, and I think men are terrified. Um, I mean, at least here in the U.S., right? Like, I think men are a lot more sensitive to the idea of women being, uh, there are a lot of, I mean, my boss, my boss at the museum that I work at, she's a woman. Um, and I think that, you know, not that she gets a lot of pushback or anything like that. But I think that there are more women who are coming to, to leadership roles, not just in politics, but in all types, all sorts of um, endeavors, whether it's a corporate job, or a nonprofit job, or, government or whatever the case may be and I think men are absolutely terrified And you can hear it in um you can hear it in the rhetoric of these politicians voices right like especially they just nominated the first um black woman to be nominated as a supreme court justice just happened here in the U.S. a couple weeks ago these men I mean she was interviewed by a panel full of not not just any men just full of white men full of them and they tried to break that woman down they tried to break her down. And of course, she's not the first woman that's been on the Supreme Court. But we're talking about black women here. Right. And, you know, these men, they tried to read her up and down. They questioned her career. They questioned her credentials. They questioned all sorts of things that they probably wouldn't have questioned the man on. Um, and I don't think that's because they're trying to be necessarily but they're trying to be oppressive. I think it's because they're they're scared. They're afraid that women can be just as qualified. Listen, and this is the last thing that I'll say. Here in the United States, here in the United States, the highest degree earning population is the Black woman. It's not to say that Black men don't go to college, but Black women are the most likely to actually graduate with a degree, follow through with it. We are the highest, highest educated population in America across the board. It is, listen, I, I am, I'm so proud of it. Um, I mean, I, I'm me and my sister is also college educated. I'm getting ready to graduate with my masters as well. Um, my mom, she completed some masters. So there is, she she completed some college. So there is sort of a tradition there. Um, but again, I don't think that it's men who are trying to be oppressive. I think it's men who's just like truly intimidated and truly scared of it. Quite honestly.
1: Now Let's go back to Queen Amani Rayna. Do you Mm -hmm. think that she could have had any challenge in her time in, Occupied the position that she occupied, and taking on the Roma fighting, whether it is guerrilla warfare or direct warfare, she did um, she did did what she did. That is why we are talking about her. So, do you think that she could have had any challenges?
0: Yeah, I mean, she actually was wounded in battle. Um, so, in one of the chronicles of the war, um, by a um, I actually forgot his name, but there's a, a Greek a Greek historian who chronicled the war she actually lost her eye in battle. and He calls her like a one-eyed queen or something like that. Um, he talks, he kind of like insults her and calls her a one-eyed queen. Um, so one of the challenges that she had is that she actually fought in war. That's a challenge in and of itself. Like she was injured. She was uh, injured during battle. Um, but I also think that the Roman army, the reason why this war, I think, went on for, I mean, it wasn't a long war, but the reason why it kind of carried on, I think, is because she was a woman and the Romans didn't want to admit that they were kind of being destroyed by this woman, right? They, they were being destabilized. And again, she wasn't necessarily like annihilating their army, but she was giving them financial problems. She was giving them geographical problems. She was messing up their, their money, messing up their flow. Um, so I think one of the challenges that she had was the fact that she was a woman. Um, and I think that's what made them fight even harder. You would think like men are supposed to be very like protective of a and like, you're not supposed to hit a woman and all those things that were told we're kids. Like, no, they went after her. Um, they obviously injured her in battle. So I think they injured her in battle and they, they really went after her that way because she was a woman and they couldn't, they couldn't face the idea of concept of, of, of possibly being beaten by this woman and i think that was a challenge for her that you know that she had to she had to overcome
1: where where do you think uh the instrument of war came from i, I know i remember i asked about the kind of instrument that they use for war but i'm like asking how do you think the supply came for them to sort of continue the the warfare
0: yeah um the this Again, this region is not like some, you know, it's not in the middle of Africa, right? Like it's not in like the middle of the Congo where you have to like fight through all kinds of wild animals and beasts and trees and everything, right? Like it's not, it's on the, it's on the middle of the sea, right? Or, or it's, it's, it's right on the edge of the sea. Um, It's completely accessible. They were already trading with the rest of the Mediterranean world during this time. Um, So they were trading with, and remember like Nubia is like basically... Right where Ethiopia is. So, like, they're able to trade with the Arab peoples to the, the north and to the east of them. Um, Egypt, again, like, even though Egypt was occupied by the Romans, like, they were still getting things out of Egypt because, at the end of the day, it was a trading partner. Um, and then also, like, the Nubians themselves, like, just like many other African civilizations and empires, like, they were all also craftsmen, right? Like, every African empire I can think of had some sort of way of crafting things, whether they were more interested in, like, pottery and things that you can eat out of, or like buildings or weapons, or like every African civilization has something that they specialized in. Um, and I think that's just as true for Nubia that in, in Meroe, that they just had their own craftsmen, but they also were just in such a strategic uh, strategic position where they were able to trade with all parts. They were able to trade with other nations or other states inside Africa, but they're also able to trade with you know, Europe. They're able to uh, with Asia, because they're right there in the middle. So they, that's how they probably got their um, their materials.
1: Mm-hmm. But in terms of this trade, this exploit in the Mediterranean Sea, do we have any record of their, uh, what did they use? I mean, uh, uh, what kind of boats or ship did they use to navigate uh, in the Mediterranean Sea? Okay, let's say even before the war with the Romans now, they, mm-hmm. they have become also uh, a significant power uh, within the area. So do we know about the um, logistics of moving around? Maybe in terms of trade, trading with who? What were they actually trading? What were they actually doing? So anything about, about that?
0: Yeah. Um, so uh, Nubia is also along the Nile, right? So they have to have some sort of um, marine time, uh, you know, resources. So they did have boats. Um, there's a specific name for the boat can't recall it right now, but they did have boats that they did uh, cross up and down the Nile specifically. The Nile is not necessarily the most dangerous river, right? I think even the Mediterranean is not that dangerous, but it is like a a real kind of like sea. Um, So they probably had to use a stronger way of uh, navigating the Mediterranean Sea. Um, So definitely they were boat having people, they had to be, they were literally surrounded by bodies of water. Um, But as far as like what they traded, they mostly traded with egypt right like even though they were kind of like contentious with egypt because um, they want to control of that middle space they were trading a lot of things from um the enslaved right they're trading spices they're trading um they're a writing civilization so they're trading. they're they're trading uh tools like you know papyrus things like that for for them to record on um they're trading um all kinds of like ornamental things, meaning like things that you use to like for like priests, right? Like they have special kind of cloths that they wear or special kind of necklaces that they wear. So they're also trading those sorts of materials They're sort of like gems. I mean, also gold was a big thing um, in both Egypt and Nubia as well. Um, So I think that's probably the, the basic logistics of like what they were doing at that time as far as trade goes.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you like to say about the treaty that that was signed between uh, the Rome and and them, which of course uh, make sure that they were not paid tax and Rome had to uh, take away their their, their army, uh, meaning that they actually were favored. Many historians say that the Kushite were favored by this treaty. What do you want to say about that?
0: Yeah. Um... So the, the extent of the treaty is super unclear because again, the, the Roman side is the only side that's recounted. But from what we know uh, with the evidence of the treaty um, is that this treaty happened around, uh, I believe like 20 BC, right? Cause like you go backwards in time, not forwards during this period. Um, so this happened around 20 BC and Amani Renes didn't go herself but she sent sort of like an emissary. And um, again, like I said before, it wasn't necessarily that the Nubian army was, you know, decimating, annihilating the Roman army, but they had um, destabilized their economic system, right? They had destabilized their political system. So I think a lot of those um, treaties, a lot of those concessions that Rome made on uh, on behalf of Nubia, or to Nubia rather, was to kind of relax the tension of what was happening during that war. Um, It's amazing because Rome, you know, they're obviously a conquering people in in every empire, every state that they they attacked was a tax, essentially a tax paying state. Um, So I think that's super important that Nubia was not a tax paying state. And also that region that they had occupied, which was um, hotly contested between Egypt and Nubia prior to the Greeks and the Romans, they also had to come out. So they didn't leave Egypt, right? They still kind of like encroached on Nubian territory a little bit, but it wasn't as much. And they really didn't retreat from all the territory they had conquered after they took it from the Greeks. Um, so they essentially left that middle area between Egypt and Nubia, and they retracted all the way back to the Egypt border. So they were now pretty much just in like Egypt in the outskirts of Egypt, like the very minimum outskirts of Egypt. So they weren't, you know, on Nubian territory anymore. Um, and again, that's super important. And again, it's not it's not that they had, you know, dominated the Roman army, but that just goes to show you how beneficial it is to work smarter, right? Because at the end of the day, she got what she wanted and that was to reestablish Nubian sovereignty. She didn't want to be some kind of subject, some kind of paying colonized person right like she wanted to be she wanted to make she wanted to make sure that her kingdom was something that was respected and autonomous and that's the exact result that she got
1: she managed to uh get a favorable treaty from rome my, my question is why did rome not destroy nubia i just take it like every other territory because there was nothing that could uh, that could challenge rome at the time i want to repeat mm-hmm. that again why why did they not take Nubia? Why was it that they were not able to do it? Was it for the question of logistics? Was it because the way they got there, they got disease uh, they, they were just too smart. What really is the logical explanation as to why Rome did not eventually destroy Nubia and take the territory?
0: Well, again, Rome is not is just not in Nubia. Rome is also in at the time that uh, Amani Rana sent her emissary to go talk with Augustus Caesar. He was getting ready to go lead a campaign against Arabia, who were their neighbors to the east. Um, so Rome is—I really do think the comparison between Algeria and 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 France is probably very very similar. Where you know when Algeria was fighting, uh, when France was kind of fighting against Algeria, all the other French colonies were also kind of like you know fighting against them. Well, so they they were fighting on so many different fronts, Algeria was fighting on so many different fronts, France was fighting on so many different, uh, so many different fronts that they just could not afford to keep going, right? They had other exploits that they really needed. And again, Nubia and Rome, after that, they didn't have the best relationship, but they had a less contentious relationship where Nubians were did start to trade with them on a more friendly basis, right? And that's that's the goal, right? Unless your goal is to like conquer just for the sake of conquering, just to be like violent, then more power to you. But Rome, like what they wanted was power. What they wanted was money, and you can't get money if you're constantly spending money on fighting to conquer territories who don't want to be conquered, right? You have to concede to that. Um, so. It was yes, it was favorable. It was favorable to the Nubians, but in a certain sense, it was also favorable to the Romans because they no longer had to expend so much energy on this war when they were fighting so many other wars. And at the end of the day, they did get what they wanted, which was they wanted to, to extract wealth from that part that was between Egypt and Nubia, and they were able to do that once they stopped fighting with Nubia. Um, if that makes sense,
1: hopefully. Yeah, yeah sure, sure, sure. Uh, you did say something uh, to the effect that if you, if you are uh, looking for this story, if you are trying to understand this story, you read it from, the, from what the Europeans have documented. So now it means that from the African side, we have very little uh, evidence of what already have happened. Is it like that or maybe I'm wrong?
0: Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's like that because we have less um, knowledge of Nubian language and that comes with its own um, reasons, right? Like it's easier to translate Latin, ancient Roman Latin, because that's the language that many of our, I me mean, except for English, right? But like French, Spanish, Portuguese, all that comes from the, the Roman Latin languages. So it's easy to make those sorts of translations. Um, but I mean, how many people are still going around speaking traditional African languages in, in you know, um, in more more formal settings, like even yourself, right? Like I I have plenty of Nigerian friends who I'm sure speak dozens of languages or at least speak two to three other languages, two indigenous languages. I have never heard them speak it a day in my life. They talk to me in English, right? Um, I have friends from Kenya who are the same way. They speak, you know, two or three indigenous languages but they never use it because it's the main sort of um, method of speaking is the colonial language. Um, So I think, That, because of those reasons, is why we also see these only European points of view, even in ancient history, um, because we just don't have the knowledge to translate these indigenous languages because they haven't been the focal point for so long.
1: All right. But in terms of documentation, uh, even though uh, it had not been translated, do we have some documentation from the side of the Numbia of the encounter with the Roma that uh, can be examined?
0: Yeah. Um, so one of the ways we kind of know about Amani Renis um, her like revolutionary work is uh, one of the initial offenses that the Nubians did against the Romans were to ransack the places that they had conquered, the places that they were occupying. So they went in there. Amani Renis like led this, this armed group of armed people um, in Killed soldiers and captured Romans and took a lot of um, like artifacts and looted a lot of artifacts. And one of the artifacts that they looted was a statue of Augustus Caesar. And they kept, deca- they decapitated um, this this statue. And Amani Renus took the head of the statue back and buried it under a temple that was dedicated to 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 her. Um, so at the entrance, and it's buried under the feet of a statue of her. Um, so it's kind of like she's stepping on her enemy, right? Um, so, and this is something that you can actually see in a it's, I forgot which museum it is, but it is a museum in the U.S. and you can actually go see this. Um, you can Google it too. It's like the head of Augustus Caesar um, at the Temple of uh, Dake, I think it's called. Um, and so that's one way that we were able to analyze this, this war and, and how Amani Renis like came to be a sort of, you know, revolutionary figure.
1: Uh, apart from that, is it really... Yeah, it's simple to conduct this research to be able to understand what has happened many years ago. I mean, from your point of view as a researcher, as a historian, how easy is it for you to conduct these studies? It's
0: very difficult, actually. Um, it has to come from an, in- an interdisciplinary approach. Um, a lot of the work that I've read on on this uh, this period was anthropological I know nothing I mean I can't say I don't know anything about anthropology but as as a historian you're you need to work interdisciplinary, right um I do a lot of work with music with African and diasporic music I have to do I have to kind of know a lot about ethnomusicology um which is a own discipline in its own right so I think it's very difficult not that it's impossible I would say I wouldn't use the word difficult I would say it's very complex because you have to like look at anthropological pieces um, in a certain sense, you have to look at linguistic pieces if we're, we're thinking about how the different, you know, languages are describing the events that happen. So now you have to know a little bit about linguistics. Um, there have been so many different disciplines that I've had to tap into in order to really understand this story. It becomes a little bit easier when when evidence becomes more known, um, because you now I can just like read books that have been synthesized and I can learn more about the information of when things are so unclear. Um, you have to kind of look at any resources that you can possibly get and some of these resources are very very complicated and things that I have not necessarily dealt with before Um, so it is very complex but i think that makes it fun right because you have to like learn something new you have to learn how to you know look at things a new way because it's not the answer is not just going to be given to you in some random book you have to learn how to like go to a museum's website and look for this statue and look at ancient pictures on a wall and be able to identify them um so it was a, a a really good exercise but it was definitely very complicated.
1: If you were to say okay this is your remembrance of uh, Queen Amanirenas say maybe one thing that you say okay this is is, is major achievement a kind of what this is what is going to what she's going to be remembered for what would you say it is
0: I think the, 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 the decapitated statue, um, I think it's such a power move and it's something that like, I feel like if I was in her shoes, I probably would have did the same thing. Like I'm all, I'm a very like symbolic person and like, yeah, I'll fight you in person, but like, I want something to like, you know, show you, show the world for the rest of history, like this is what happened. And it was such a creative way to me of, um, of her, of, you know, establishing her legacy.
1: What would be your concluding message here? Maybe something you wanted to say. I didn't ask. It's possible because it's not possible for me to know everything that the guests we want to say. though. No? So what would be your conclusion regarding the conversation that we have had today? Um, I don't know, a message or a kind of reaffirming, uh, a line that you find important. Please go.
0: Um, I think that we should begin to look at Egyptian history in a new light. I think when we look at Egyptian history, Egyptian and Nubian history, I should say, like that just whole Northeast section, we, I don't know why we do it, but we kind of think of that history as different from Africa for some reason, Um, that it's kind of like in its own region or its own zone or own part of history. I think that's a very big mistake um, for, I feel like, obvious reasons, right? Like it's literally a part of Africa. It's the cradle of civilization. This is where the first, you know, modern humans were found. Um, so I think looking at Egypt, Egyptian history and Nubian history in an African context through an African lens is like super important, not just for the discipline, not just for like honesty and integrity's sake, but also just as like Black people. Um, I think once we start looking at these like, or, or like origin histories, with the sort of African lens, Pan African lens, if I could say so, um, that would be such a source of pride for us. In um, such a sor- source of um, yeah, source of pride.
1: Kamora, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure on my end. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah, thank of you. course. Thank you so much. It's <laughs> great to talk with you. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate our review overhead podcast, and share with your friends who might need it. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.